0: Welcome to another episode of relics from the past and today We have the 80s the good and the bad and the reason I call it the 80s the good and the bad is because I have acquired Four read-alongs from the 80s that were not released in the USA at all they were from the UK apparently from a um, company called rainbow and this is going to be kindly a little slightly longer episode than usual. But these are just like so bad that they need to be out there somewhere. So the first one that I offer you all is Back to the Future. Yes, they made a Back to the Future read-along. But it was just in the UK. And the acting is so, so so bad that it deserves to be archived in some form so i figured why not put it on relics from the past so here is the back to the future read along from the uk
1: in this story back to the future when you hear this turn the page let's begin now could see his breath in the autumn air that filled hill valley town square he walked up to his girlfriend jennifer and smiled
2: my dad's letting me use his car next saturday night
1: he told her
3: oh marty it'll be our first official date
2: well it's a crummy old car but someday when i earn enough money i'll get that four by four truck i've had my eye on
1: suddenly a voice boomed in marty's ear
3: shave the clock tower
1: a woman stuck a can between jennifer and marty
3: some money to save the clock tower
1: she pointed to the big clock on the tower of the courthouse
3: 30 years ago lightning struck that tower at exactly 10.04 p.m and the clock hasn't run since the mayor wants to replace it but we feel it should be left as is
1: marty dropped the coin into her can
3: thank you
1: the woman said
3: Don't forget to take a flyer. It tells you all about the clock tower.
1: Nearby, a car honked loudly.
3: That's my dad. I've got to go.
1: Jennifer said, and she kissed Marty. Marty smiled. He was feeling very happy. His happy feeling quickly faded as he watched the tow truck back the remains of his father's car into the McFly driveway. Marty could hear Biff's voice all the way from the street, Biff was his father's boss.
4: I can't believe you loaned me your car without telling me it has a blind spot, McFly. Biff yelled. I could have been killed.
1: Marty stepped into the house. As he'd suspected, his father, George McFly, was backed into a corner. Biff had smashed up George's car, and yet George was apologizing to Biff. That evening, Marty was still upset about the car. Now he would have to cancel his date with Jennifer. There was no use talking to his father about it. Marty's mother, Lorraine, was also no help.
5: That girl Jennifer called while you were out,
3: Marty, she said. I'm not sure I like her. When I was a girl, I never called a boy.
1: Oh, no, Marty thought. The dreaded
2: first date story.
1: Sure enough, his mother went into her favorite tale for the millionth time. Our father had hit Marty's dad with the family car and then carried George into the house for first aid.
5: He seemed so helpless,
1: Lorraine said,
3: like a little lost puppy. The very next weekend, we went on our first date, the school dance. It was the night of that terrible thunderstorm. Your father kissed me for the first time, and I realized I was going to spend the rest of my life with him.
1: That's a nice story, Mom. Marty lied. His parents were getting old right before his eyes. His mother was overweight and graying, and his father was always being pushed around. It made Marty sad. He really did love them, despite everything. Marty went up to his room and fell into bed. He soon dozed off, but was awakened when his phone rang. Hello, Marty, said the voice on the phone. This. Doc Brown was a local scientist and inventor, and Marty's good friend.
2: Huh? What's going on, Doc?
1: Marty asked. Meet me
6: in the parking lot of the Twin Pines shopping mall right away. I got something
2: incredible to show you. Uh, Okay. I'll be right there.
1: Minutes later, Marty arrived at the parking lot. There stood Doc Brown beside the strangest car Marty had ever seen.
7: How
6: do you like my time machine, Marty?
1: Doc asked.
6: It used to be a DeLorean car. But I made some changes. I'll say.
1: Marty exclaimed. It looked more like a rocket ship than a car.
2: How does it work, Doc? It runs on plutonium. Plutonium? But that's the stuff they use to build nuclear bombs. You're absolutely
6: right, Marty. But in this case, it's perfectly safe. You see, I needed a huge amount of energy to run my time machine. One day, a gang of criminals brought me this plutonium and asked me to build them a bomb. I kept the plutonium for my time machine instead.
1: Doc swung open the door of his time machine.
6: Look at this, Marty,
1: he said, pointing to the car's dashboard.
6: This is the gadget you use to set your destination. You say, you want to go backwards in time. Uh, let's use the day I created the formula for my time machine. You just set this dial to eleven five fifty-five, 5 uh, November 5, 1955, and start driving. <laughs> when you reach a speed of 88 miles per hour, kaboom! you're instantly sent back through time are you going into the past
1: marty asked
6: no marty i'm going into the future
1: however before doc was able to reset the dial he and marty saw a van speeding toward them
6: oh no
1: doc gasped
6: it's that criminal gang whose plutonium i stole
1: one of the gang aimed a machine gun at the startled inventor and opened fire Doc fell to the pavement. Marty could hardly believe it. Doc Brown was dead. The gunman fired at Marty. Marty leaped into the time machine and started the engine. The car took off. A few seconds later, it hit 88 miles per hour and instantly disappeared. Kaboom! Marty found himself speeding through a cornfield. Wham! The time machine crashed into a barn. Marty got out and realized that he was on a farm.
2: I don't know where Twin Pines Mall went, but I just want to go home.
1: Marty located a familiar highway and finally found his way home. He started to turn onto his own street, but it was gone. Then he looked at the destination dial on the car's dashboard. It read, November 5. 1955.
2: It works,
1: Marty gasped.
2: I've traveled 30 years into the past. My neighborhood hasn't been built
1: yet. Suddenly, the car's engine died. Marty tried to restart it, but it was no use. He was out of plutonium. Marty hid the time machine and hiked into town. But it was not at all like he remembered it. Marty didn't recognize any of the old-fashioned shops that surrounded the courthouse. Marty entered the soda fountain and took a stool at the counter.
4: Hey, McFly,
1: A voice said. Marty turned to see who it was. The voice belonged to Biff. Only this Biff was barely older than Marty.
4: I'm talking to you,
1: McFly, said the young Biff. Except that he wasn't talking to Marty. Biff was speaking to the boy on the next stool, who was Marty's own father, George McFly.
4: Hey, McFly, you were supposed to do my homework for me,
1: Biff said to George.
4: I'll go do it right
1: away, answered George. Before Marty could even open his mouth, George had run out of the soda fountain. Marty ran after him. He finally found George up in a tree, trying to see into the house across the street. Ah! Suddenly, George came crashing down right in the middle of the road. At that moment, a car turned the corner, heading right for George. Dad! Marty screamed. He threw himself into the street and pushed George out of the way. The car kept coming, and Marty recognized his grandfather behind the wheel just before he bounced off the hood and passed out. Marty woke up in a dark room. Mom? He moaned. Oh, I had a terrible dream. Sitting beside him on the bed was his mother.
5: You're gonna be all right now,
1: she said. She turned on a lamp. It was Marty's mom all right except that she was a very young and very pretty girl. You're so, so... Marty tried to find the words. So thin.
3: Why, thank you.
1: His teenage mother said.
3: That's so sweet of you.
5: You were so helpless when my father carried you in, like a little lost puppy.
1: Marty's mouth went dry. It was the dreaded first date story. Lorraine was supposed to fall in love with George while taking care of Marty.
2: By saving my father from getting hit by that car, I've just stopped him from meeting my mother, thought Marty. If they never meet, they'll never fall in love and get married. And if they never get married, I'll never be born. I've got to find Doc
1: Brown, Marty said as he ran out of the room.
2: I feel better. Thanks, Lorraine.
1: Marty didn't stop running until he got to Doc Brown's house. He stepped up to the front door and rang the bell.
6: Who are you?
1: A young-looking Doc Brown asked. Marty told him the whole story.
6: I believe
1: you, said Doc Brown, handing Marty a sheet of paper.
6: It's my formula for the time machine. You've described it perfectly. Quick, let's go get it.
1: Before long, Marty and Doc managed to tow the time machine back to Doc's lab.
6: There's only one problem in getting you back to the future, Marty, Doc told him. Power! Here in 1955, I have no way of getting more plutonium. The only other thing powerful enough to run the time machine is a bolt of lightning. But we have no way to tell when or where one is going to strike. Oh, yes, we do,
1: said Marty. Marty reached into his pocket and handed Doc Brown the flyer. According. To this, Doc Brown began,
6: lightning will strike the courthouse this Saturday night at exactly 10.04. Well, I can rig up something to channel the energy from the clock tower into the time machine, but we still have one problem, Marty.
1: My parents? asked Marty.
6: That's right. If you don't get them together before you leave for the future
2: on Saturday. You may just vanish on the way back to 1985. I understand, Doc. You take care of my trip home. I'll work on George and Lorraine.
1: The next morning, Marty went to the local high school where he found his father.
2: Hi, George. Marty began. Remember me? I'm Marty. I saved your life yesterday. Right.
1: Remembered George.
2: Thanks, Marty. Listen, George.
1: Marty continued.
2: I met this girl yesterday named Lorraine Baines. She's got a crush on you. Come on, I'll introduce you.
1: George followed Marty over to where Lorraine was standing. Lorraine? Said Marty.
2: I'd like you to meet George McFly.
1: But Lorraine had a crush on Marty. Marty returned to Doc Brown's and found him hard at work. It's all set, Marty. Doc said. I'm going to run a wire from the clock to the street.
6: All you have to do is drive the car under the wire at exactly 10.04 p.m. Saturday night. Make the connection, and you'll be on your way back to the future. That's great, Doc, said Marty.
2: Only I didn't do so well with my folks. you got to think of something,
1: Marty, said Doc.
2: Listen, Doc, there's something I've got to tell you. It's about what happens to you in the future. No! You're not to tell
6: me anything about my own personal future. I might do something that would alter the course of history.
1: So Marty wrote a note warning Doc, sealed it in an envelope, and hid it in Doc's coat pocket. That night, Marty put on his radiation suit, took his portable cassette player, and snuck into George's bedroom. He slipped the headphones onto George's ears and blasted loud music which woke George up.
8: I'm an alien from the planet Vulcan,
1: Marty began.
8: I have come to give you the courage to ask Lorraine to the dance. Tomorrow you will ask her.
1: George loved science fiction and believed in aliens. Marty's trick had worked. The next day, full of courage, George went to ask Lorraine to the dance. Just as he was about to ask her out, Biff walked up and began to pick on George.
4: Hey, McFly! Biff yelled. Keep away from that girl. I'm reserving her for myself.
1: Marty was so angry at Biff for spoiling George's chance that he tripped Biff and sent him flying. Uh!
3: I thought you were just super the way you took care of Biff, Marty.
1: Lorraine said afterwards.
3: I was wondering if... maybe you'd take me to the dance this Saturday?
1: Marty said yes. But he had a plan. He explained it to George.
2: I'm gonna drive her to the dance, George. But once we get there, I'll slip away and you'll take my place.
1: Saturday night arrived and Marty drove Lorraine to the dance. As they were getting out of the car, Marty felt a strong hand on his shoulder. He turned in time to see Biff's fist as it knocked him out.
4: You're my date now, sweetheart,
1: Biff said to Lorraine.
9: Leave me alone! You're hurting me!
1: Lorraine cried. Suddenly, Biff felt a hand on his shoulder. He turned around and saw George McFly. What
9: do you
4: want, McFly?
1: Biff laughed.
4: Get out of here.
1: George removed his hand from Biff's shoulder. Then he saw tears in Lorraine's eyes.
4: You take your hands off her, Biff?
1: George demanded. This time, Biff didn't laugh.
4: I've had enough of you, McFly, Biff said. Maybe I'll teach you a lesson.
1: He grabbed George's arm and twisted it. George had never been so furious in his entire life. He broke free and hit Biff with all of his might. (laughs) fell to the ground and stayed there
3: are you all right lorraine
1: asked george
3: yes thank you
1: said lorraine now dreamy-eyed over george her newfound hero marty awoke in time to see them enter the school he couldn't have been happier history had been set straight it was time for him to go
6: Is the meaning of
1: this? Doc Brown asked Marty when he arrived at the town square. Doc held Marty's message in his hand.
6: This is about the future, isn't it, Marty?
1: Thunder rumbled close by.
6: I don't want to hear about my future.
1: Doc told Marty and tore up the envelope. Before Marty could argue with his friend, Doc started to run towards the courthouse.
6: It's time for you to get into the time machine. He yelled. Good luck, Marty. I'll see you in 1985! Doc!
1: Marty screamed. But Doc Brown could no longer hear him. Marty ran towards the time machine, knowing that he'd failed to warn Doc Brown of his murder. Then he had an idea. I'll go back
2: 10 minutes early and warn him.
1: Marty adjusted the dials and turned the key to start the engine. The car jerked into motion. Faster and faster it went, flying down the street toward the courthouse. At exactly 10.04 p.m., the time machine connected with the wire. Marty saw the car hit 88 miles per hour and felt it disappear. Kaboom! Marty was back in 1985, screeching the car to a halt. He ran all the way to the mall, but he was too late. He arrived just in time to witness Doc's murder for the second time.
2: Why didn't you read my note, Doc?
1: Marty cried to the body of his friend.
6: I did, Marty.
1: Doc Brown sat up and pulled Marty's note from his pocket. It was taped and ragged and brown with age.
2: You're alive!
1: Marty exclaimed.
2: But how did you survive those bullets?
1: Doc Brown pulled open his coat.
2: (laughs) Bulletproof vest,
1: he said. Doc Brown dropped Marty off at the McFly residence.
6: I'm going into the future
1: now, Marty, he told his young friend.
2: Look me up when you get there, Doc,
1: said Marty. The next morning, Marty woke up in his own bed. Little did he expect the surprise that awaited him downstairs.
3: Good morning, Marty, said his mother. Did you have a
1: good sleep? Marty could hardly believe his eyes. His mother was the correct age again, but she was still thin and beautiful. His father was also changed. George McFly looked confident and athletic.
4: Cat got your tongue, Marty?
1: George laughed.
6: Oh, Marty's just excited about his date tonight with
1: Jennifer. Teased his mom.
4: Biff has your new 4x4 truck all polished and ready to go, son.
1: George said to Marty.
4: So you and Jennifer have a good time tonight.
1: Marty ran to the garage. Sure enough, there was Biff polishing the truck of Marty's dreams.
4: I shined it real good for you, said Biff just like your dad
1: told me to. Suddenly, everything fell into place. Marty understood now why things were so different. Instead of being weak and helpless, George McFly had stood up to Biff. Marty had changed the past after all. Thanks to him, both of his parents grew up to be happy and confident.
3: How about a ride, mister?
1: Marty turned and saw Jennifer standing in the driveway. A moment later, they both jumped in surprise. The time machine appeared out of nowhere.
6: Marty, you've got to come back with me into the future.
1: It was Doc Brown. Dressed in strange clothing, he leaped out of the time machine.
6: What's wrong, Doc?
1: Marty asked him.
6: You've got to come back with me. And Jennifer should come, too. Because this also involves her. It's your kids, Marty. Something's got to be done about your kids.
1: Without hesitation, Marty and Jennifer joined Doc inside the time machine. Doc touched a new switch. The car suddenly rose over the ground and flew off, heading back
7: to the future.
0: only was that bad but it was bad the voice acting is atrocious the music is not even from the movie and if you thought that one was bad wait till you hear the next one a movie that you would think would never get a children's read-along just because of the subject matter of the actual um movie for example now i like this movie as much as a bunch of folks but i just don't see how they made read-along material out of it i mean it's just a more adult movie under the guise of a movie that is for kids but here it is this steaming pile of crap well a steaming pile of crap of a read-along called Howard the Duck.
10: Rainbow. The Rainbow Theater presents Howard the Duck? You can read along with me in your book. When you hear this, Turn the page. Let's begin now. The universe is a vast span of limitless space punctuated by countless worlds where every possible reality exists. Reality on any one world is mere fantasy on all others. Here, all is real and all is illusion. What is, what was, And what will be, starts here, with the words... In the beginning was... Howard the Duck. In his shabby little apartment on Duck World, millions of miles away, out amongst the furthest galaxies, Howard the Duck switched on his TV set. Slowly, a picture came into focus.
9: Oh, no! It's not enough I got to spend a boring evening parked in front of the boob tube. Now there's nothing on but a boring old soap opera. Why does nothing exciting ever happen around here? I have a good mind to... Hey! What's going on?
10: Howard's whole apartment had begun to shake. Suddenly there was a loud explosion and a blinding flash. Howard shot across the room and smashed through the apartment wall. Up he flew, above the buildings and out into space, until the two moons of his home planet were left far behind. He hurtled past glittering stars and asteroids, and then he began to tumble down, down toward an eerie greenish-blue world far below. Screeching like a banshee, he plummeted down towards the lights of a strange city. Down and down he went, and finally landed with a bubble in a dark and dingy alley. In this alley, there was a rock club. And inside the club, an all-girl group called Cherry Bomb had just finished performing. Beverly Switzler, the lead singer with Cherry Bomb, was just coming out into the alley. Without noticing Howard, she began to walk towards the main street. And then she stopped dead in her tracks. Two dark figures stood in the shadows, blocking her path.
6: Say, you sing real good, baby.
9: Yeah, and you look real good, too.
3: <laughs> Thanks. Now, how about getting out of my way? What's
9: your
6: hurry? Why don't we have our own private show, right here?
3: No! No! Stay away! Help! Somebody help me!
10: Beverly's cry stirred something deep within Howard's feathered breast. Suddenly, as the punks wrestled Beverly to the pavement, he let out a chilling yell.
9: hi On my planet, we never say die. We say kill. What
10: the? Out leapt an enraged Howard, posed in the traditional fighting stance of a master of the Duck World martial art of quack-foo. A quick kick sent the smaller punk sprawling into a pile of trash. A deadly chop to the throat left the other, gasping against the wall.
6: Hey! This guy's crazy! Let's get out of here!
9: Oh, wait for me.
10: As the two punks fled down the alley, Beverly got to her feet.
3: Wow! Thanks a lot! Say, are you... Are you really a
9: duck? Sure I'm a duck. Where am I? Cleveland. Never heard of it. It's in the United States of America. The United? Say, what planet is this? Why, Earth of course. Holy duck! How did I get here? You gotta help me.
3: (laughs) Okay, take it easy. Relax. Where do you
9: live? On duck world. And I gotta get home.
3: You'd better spend the night at my place. You can tell me all about it, and first thing tomorrow, we'll go over to the Museum of Natural History. I know a guy there, Phil Blumbert. He's some sort of animal scientist. He'll know what to do.
10: That evening, at Beverly's apartment, Howard told her all about his mysterious journey to Earth. Next morning, bright and early, they set off for the museum. Phil Blumbert could hardly contain his enthusiasm when he saw Howard.
11: Look, I think I can explain what happened. I belong to a research group headed by a man called Jenning. Last night, we were carrying out an experiment in the Aerodyne Lab using the laser spectroscope to take a reading from deep space. We must have accidentally hit your planet and.
9: Terrific, why, you dumb son of a mallard. I'm really sorry, Howard. Let's get over to the Aerodyne lab right
11: away! We should be able to send you home the same way we brought you here, with the laser spectroscope!
10: When they arrived at the lab, they found the place in a shambles. Alarm bells were ringing, and fires were raging everywhere. Out of the smoke staggered a young scientist. What happened, Wilson? It, it was Jenning! He activated the laser spectroscope a second time! Something else was drawn down to Earth, only this time it was something terribly evil. There was a massive explosion. We don't know what happened to Jenning. The police have been notified, they've got the whole story. Here they are now!
9: Okay, nobody move. Hanson, grab a hold of that alien. Hey! I demand a lawyer! Doesn't your planet believe in equal rights for ducks? Lieutenant, Howard is harmless. But there's another creature around here somewhere and... Oh, yeah?
6: Hanson, take this guy in the duck suit downtown and lock him up until I can sort out this mess. What's the charge, sir? Impersonating an alien.
10: Hanson and another policeman led Howard out of the lab to where a police car was waiting. Beverly followed. Suddenly, Howard gave a blood-curdling yell and leapt into action.
9: hi
12: Get him off me, Hanson!
9: Well, that takes care of them. Now I'm in a worse mess than ever. If they find me, I'm a dead duck. Hey, Bev, look! There's someone over there, in the shadows. Okay, don't shoot. I give up. I won't
6: harm you. I'm Jenning. You must be the first alien we brought down. Listen to me, both of you. I saw the second alien... And it's evil.
9: It's inside me. Now, it's taking me over. Shannon, you've lost your marbles. We've no time for all this. We've got to get out of here. Come on.
10: When the music stops, turn your cassette over. Grabbed Jennings by the arm and pulled him towards an empty police car with Beverly following close behind. They got in, Jennings started the engine, and they sped off down the road. Suddenly, Jennings screamed
6: I'm slipping away! Help me!
9: That creature has got
6: control of me! It's taking over!
9: Can't you wait until we reach a rest stop? Look, there's a diner over there. Pull over.
10: The car skidded to a stop in front of the diner. Inside, Jenning began to act very strangely. He picked up a glass of water, and it began to boil in his hand. He gulped down the steaming liquid as Howard and Beverly watched in amazement. His body glowed frighteningly, and his eyes gleamed. Then he spoke.
12: Jenning is dead. I am a dark overlord from the nexus of Sominus. The laser spectroscope released me from the regions of demons and brought me down to Earth. Now, I am going to draw the other dark overlords down, and together we will destroy all life on this planet. i leave you now, Howard, but I'm taking the girl with me. I shall need her.
10: The alien grabbed Beverly and hurried her out of the diner with Howard in hot pursuit. There was an unattended truck outside, and the alien bundled Beverly inside and drove off at high speed, almost running down Howard in the process. The dark overlord was now completely in control of Jennings' physical form. A slimy eel-like tentacle protruded from its mouth, and it fed on electrical energy from the truck. Beverly stared in horror.
3: What are you going to do with me?
12: We
10: are going back to the lab. When
12: I bring the Dark Overlords down to Earth, I shall need a body. Your body. The Dark Overlords cannot exist on Earth unless they have a body to grow in.
10: Howard wandered unhappily back to the diner. At that moment, there was the wail of police sirens, and several police cars drew up outside. Howard hastily dodged into the bushes. Several policemen piled out of the cars and entered the diner. And then, suddenly, Howard spotted Phil Blumbert, sitting handcuffed in the back of one of the police cars. Cautiously, he sneaked over to the unattended car.
9: Phil? Is that you? Howard! They arrested me! I'm gonna have a criminal record! So what? You and everyone else on this wacky planet will soon be dead if we don't stop Jenning. That demon from outer space has taken him over. He's going to bring down more monsters so he can conquer Earth. And he's kidnapped Beverly. Howard, if what you say is true, he'll head back to the plant to use the laser spectroscope. Of course it's true, you bird brain. Now use that expensive education of yours to get us out of here. Okay, now listen. Just down the road, there's a small plane parked in the field. An ultralight.
11: If it weren't for these handcuffs, I'd fly it myself. But I can't. So you're gonna
9: do it. (coughs) Me? But I don't have my pilot's license.
10: Trembling with fear, Howard managed to get the ultralight airborne. How he did it, he never knew. But just 15 minutes later, they landed outside the lab. Carefully, they made their way to the room containing the laser spectroscope and peeked inside. Jenning was bending over the spectroscope. Tied to a metal table beneath the lens was Beverly. Howard clenched his beak.
2: Howard! You can't fight him with your bare hands. You'll need a weapon. You can
9: use this. It's a neutron disintegrator. It'll blast the alien to kingdom come, but we've got to hurry before he sees us. Too late, Filzy old boy. He spotted
10: us. A searing ray from Jenning's outstretched hand blasted a huge hole in the lab wall. Howard activated the neutron disintegrator. There was a blinding flash. And then silence. When the smoke cleared, someone moaned. It was Jenning. Phil and Howard rushed to his side.
6: I'm all right. The alien's not inside me anymore,
10: but it's loose. Here in the lab. Over there, look! They looked up and saw the Dark Overlord in its true form, a huge, loathsome monster. It was about to activate the laser spectroscope and bring down an army of Dark Overlords.
9: If I fire at that creature, I'll destroy the one device that can send me home. Oh well. Someone's gotta save these hairless apes. So long, Duck World.
10: Howard pressed the trigger of the Neutron Disintegrator. And the Dark Overlord disappeared in a tremendous flash of fire. And the Spectroscope disintegrated with it.
11: Howard! You've just saved the entire Earth from destruction! But you'll never get back
9: to Duck World now. You're trapped on Earth! Forever! Then I guess there's only one thing to do. I'll have to look for a job. Hey Bev, could you use a manager for your rock group?
0: Yeah, that was just bad, like really, really bad, like so bad even the narrator couldn't admit that, uh, I mean, you could tell in the narrator's voice, he couldn't believe it. The Rainbow Theater presents Howard the Duck. He couldn't even believe that he was like going to be narrating a Howard the Duck read along. The voice acting is so bad, and it says like in there about him pulling Jennings, uh, Toward a cop car. Everybody that's seen Howard the Duck knows that they're in like a um, one of those Woody cars that they call it, and they, or like SUV type deal. They they don't steal a cop car. Even these things do not even get the movies like right on point. And none of them use like any music from the movies whatsoever, which doesn't make much sense to me. But now we're going to move on with another bad one. One that's actually could have been good if the voice of of the main character Johnny 5 was done better and the voice acting was better and if it had the huge huge the who's Johnny song in it it might have actually been pretty good. Now, here's short circuit.
8: The Rainbow Theater presents Short Circuit. You can read along with me in your book. When you hear this, turn the page. Let's begin now. Short Circuit. Dr. Marner and his team at Nova Robotics have developed five very versatile robots armed with lasers. They were created by a young man, Newton Crosby, who is concerned more with the machines themselves than with their military application. After a successful demonstration, robot number five is subjected to a great overload when the electricity supply is struck by lightning. Instead of following its fellows, it deviates from its course and is accidentally pushed into a garbage truck and driven away. As soon as it is missed, Crosby goes to the control room and makes contact with it, but it refuses to obey orders. And when they tune in to its homing device, Marner becomes alarmed.
6: Good Lord! It's outside the fence, and its laser is still
11: armed. Crosby, what's it going to do? Hard to say. I mean, it's
8: malfunctioning. Maybe it won't do anything. Schroeder, the security chief, is not convinced.
11: But it could decide to blow away anything that
8: moves, couldn't it? It could. Marner looks horrified.
11: It's not coming back! We've got to destroy it, Crosby. Are you serious? Blow it up? How am I gonna study it? We should at least make some effort to retrieve it. Okay, you got 20
8: minutes. I just want Schroeder out there as backup. You understand, Schroeder? You don't have to blow it up. But Schroeder is not so sure when he gives orders to his men.
11: Whatever it takes to put that goddamn contraption out of commission, boys, that's
8: what you do. Meanwhile, number five falls off the garbage truck and over a bridge. He lands on a catering truck passing on the freeway beneath. His pursuers are amazed as the homing device shows him traveling even further from the laboratory. The truck is driven by Stephanie Thurber, an attractive young woman who is very much into health foods and stray animals. When she gets home, she's disturbed by strange sounds coming from her truck.
3: Hey, get out of there.
8: The serving window swings open and reveals number five. At first, Stephanie is terrified, but she quickly recovers.
3: I knew they'd pick me. I just knew it. Welcome to my planet. Don't be scared. I am a friend. Friend? This is Earth. Malfunction. Need input. Input? That's information, right? Why don't you come in the house? We can talk. Communicate. Input. Come on, it's okay. Walk this way. Uh, Roll this way. Uh, Move out. Uh, Giddy-up! Heel, march, Uh, forward. Forward.
8: Forward is a word that number five is programmed to understand and he follows her into the house. Stephanie introduces him to her animals and names various objects for her visitor from outer space.
3: That's input. I'm giving you great input. Uh, How about pictures? Uh, Look at this encyclopedia. Input? Aardvark, Abyssinia, Adams, John. Holy cow, you can read.
8: Number five begins flipping pages faster and faster and in no time has read all the books on Stephanie's shelves. He then begins to pick up objects, identifies them, and drops them on the floor.
3: Hey, come on. This may be hilarious where you come from, but on this planet, it's considered, well, rude. Hey, I'll turn on the TV. How about this? Input.
8: Number five is fascinated. He rushes over to the TV and watches intently. When Stephanie comes down the next morning, he is still watching. She turns it off.
3: Have you been watching all night?
8: Number five turns the set on again.
3: Haven't you had enough of this stuff? Have a heart. Have a heart,
10: don't cry, little girl. Smile your tears away and dozens of other hits all in this big two-record set. How oh, you learn to talk? Replicate, reproduce,
3: imitate. Are you tired
10: of bills piling up? Simplify your life with a counted in a can.
3: Hey, come on. You didn't come a million miles to do commercials, did you? Come outside. Look at the sunrise. Oh, beautiful, huh? Beautiful light bulb? No, sun. Beautiful no sun? (laughs) Beautiful sun. Beautiful goldfish. What? Oh, you mean the cloud. Yeah, it does sort of look like a goldfish.
8: Number five points at a squirrel.
3: Beautiful animal, mammal, squirrel.
10: Now you're cooking. Beautiful animal, mammal, canine, dog, cocker, spaniel.
8: The dog lunges forward, snarling and barking. Startled, number five zooms backwards and overturns. Concerned, Stephanie rushes over to him.
3: Oh, please don't be hurt. Say something.
10: Beautiful, Stephanie.
3: Oh, thank you. Hey, wait a minute. What's this written here? Prototype number five, Nova Robotics. You're a robot! I thought you were alive! Number five, gee, I'm so stupid. Stupid, foolish, gullible, doltish, dumbbell. Shut up! Shut up, silence, hush, sit on it, can it. Hey, what am I getting upset about? Maybe there's a reward for this thing.
8: Stephanie goes inside and rings the laboratory, telling them where they can find their missing robot. When she comes outside again, number five is exploring.
3: Hey, you, number five, where are you going? I just called Nova, and they're coming to get you and give you a tune-up. Tune-up? Input? Uh, Take you apart. See which screw is loose. Apart? Undone?
12: Dismantle? Dissect? Disassemble.
8: A grasshopper hops past. And number five hops after it.
3: Jump. Yeah, jump. It's a grasshopper. Grasshopper? A thopterous insect? Oh, look what you've done, number five. You've hopped on top of him. Error. Grasshopper, disassemble. Reassemble. I can't reassemble him. You squashed him. He's dead.
12: Squash dead. Disassemble dead. Disassemble dead.
8: Number five speeds off. He gets inside Stephanie's truck and scans the driving manual rapidly. Stephanie just has time to get in the back as the truck lurches out into the street with number five at the wheel. He only stops the truck when Stephanie convinces him that unless he does so, they will both be disassembled.
3: Escape, Stephanie. Escape. What are you scared of, number five? Disassemble. Dead. You're afraid of being disassembled? Disassemble. Dead. Oh, but you can't die. You're a machine. No. No, you're not a machine? Yes. Yes, you are, or or yes, you're not. Yes yes what yes Not. talk about malfunction not malfunction number five is alive
8: crosby and his assistant ben have picked up number five's homing signal and catch up with him at last they can't believe what stephanie has to say about him
3: he's scared that if you take him apart he's going to die
8: crosby stares at her where'd you hear that
3: number five told me he'd tell you if you just talked to him
11: that's what I've been trying to do through this terminal keyboard
3: I mean with your mouth look hey number five these guys just want to talk to you come out and tell them what you told me no disassemble
8: Crosby turns to Ben
11: I can't believe it's listening to her and not to us I'm amazed
8: At that moment, Schroeder and his guards arrived on the scene and start firing at the robot. They hit it several times and damage it. Crosby moves into the line of fire to stop them and then presses a button on the robot to immobilize it. Before he does so, Number 5 has time to speak.
12: Now disassemble! Alive! Number 5 alive! Stephanie! Stephanie!
8: The button is pressed and number five is paralyzed, apart from his head. They put him into a robot transport truck and drive him back to the laboratory. But number five is not finished yet. He manages to switch himself on again and then proceeds to repair himself. In full working order again, he takes over the truck, leaves Crosby and Ben at the side of the road and drives off. He removes his homing device and tosses it into a pickup driven in the opposite direction. Then he drives back to Stephanie. She opens the door to him, wrapped in a bath towel.
3: Attractive. Nice software. Boy, you sure don't talk like a machine. Alive, Stephanie. Number five,
12: alive.
3: You think you're alive, but those guys who built you say no way. You've got to get out of here. Solitude. Isolation. Alone. Lonely. Okay, You can stay till morning.
8: Number 5 turns on the TV. It's a dance film. Number 5 joins in, then grabs Stephanie and dances with her. She finds it quite enjoyable.
3: Hmm, not bad. Dancing Fool, big finish. Right. But then I'm going to bed, and in the morning, you're going to find yourself a new home. This home. Stephanie home. Number 5 home.
8: The next morning, Number 5 tries to prepare breakfast, but most of it ends up on the floor. Then, an unpleasant ex-boyfriend of Stephanie's calls. He intends to tell Schroeder where Number 5 is, and so collect the big reward. But the robot strips his car down on its component parts and he's unable to follow as Stephanie and Number Five make their escape in the truck. Stephanie is insistent.
3: I'm driving.
8: Number Five explains that Crosby is the only one who can help them. She phones Nova and says that she will meet with Crosby at an isolated roadside bar. When he joins her there, she tells him the deal.
3: Number five is alive. I know he's a machine, but hey, you're a machine, I'm a machine. We're alive. How it happens, who knows? But it has happened.
11: Okay, believe me, I'm not against the idea, but I built this machine from scratch and alive just doesn't compute.
3: I know, but somehow it's true. You know, you really have nice eyes.
8: Stephanie has left number five in a forest clearing for safety but he is surprised by the other four robots brought out by Schroeder who overheard Stephanie's message to Crosby. Number five, however, outwits and disables him and comes back to the bar to warn Stephanie of the trap. She is still talking to Crosby.
3: If I show you where he is, do I have your word? You will not experiment on him. You will not flip his switches and you will not take him apart.
8: You've got my word.
3: Okay, I'll take you to him.
8: Unknown to them, Schroeder has been listening.
11: Okay, lady. While you're at it, why not take us, too?
6: Thanks for your help, Crosby. Number five comes
8: blasting through the wall and causes chaos.
10: Oh!
8: He and Stephanie escape in her truck. It breaks down and number five states the obvious.
3: Car problems, Stephanie? Oh, that creep, Crosby. They're all alike. They come near you, Number Five. You blast them. No, no, disassemble. Oh, what am I talking about? I'm sorry. I just don't know what to do.
8: Stephanie curls up in the back and while she sleeps, Number Five kidnaps Crosby and brings him back. Crosby convinces Stephanie that he didn't lead Schroeder to them and then sets about trying to find out if Number Five is really alive. When the robot laughs at a rather poor joke, he is staggered. (laughs) I can't believe it!
11: Spontaneous emotional response!
10: I am alive,
11: yes?
8: Yes! All seems to be going well, but they run into Schroeder again with the army. Crosby and Stephanie get out of the truck and try to prevent the troops from damaging the robot. They won't listen. And suddenly, Number 5 dashes out of the truck and tries to escape. Schroeder snaps out his orders. Fire
11: at will. Don't let it reach those rocks.
8: Number 5 is blown to pieces by heavy gunfire. Sadly, Crosby and Stephanie drive away. A noise in the back of the truck makes them look round, and they see a trap door open and number five roll out. Stephanie is bewildered.
3: Uh, Number five? What? How? Oh, they blew you up. Facsimile. Counterfeit. Replica.
8: Crosby understood. He made a decoy. That's
11: incredible. The guy's a genius.
3: I'm worried, number five. If they find out you're in one piece, it might not be safe around here.
11: Crosby has an idea. I've got 10 acres in Montana. Great place for him to hide out and soak up input.
3: 10 acres? That's a lot of room. Listen, do you like animals?
8: The truck accelerates on its way to Montana and safety. And tired of being always referred to as number five, the robot suggests new names for himself
12: kevin jimmy johnny five
0: that one was just bad too they're all bad i don't know i don't even know why i'm putting them in a podcast maybe because they're just so bad that they're actually kind of amusing in a way could be then again maybe it's just because they're just so bad and um i don't know I just do not know. Now I said at the beginning that um there was um four read-alongs that I'd found. Actually, I messed up. There is other bad read-alongs out there from The UK brand called Rainbow. And um, I'm going to be making two different episodes. So this is just the first bad episode in this. There's going to be more. So we're going to finish this one off with uh, one about the Karate Kid. Karate Kid 2, Okinawa. Read alone. And it is just as bad, if not the worst, in all of them.
13: The Rainbow Theater presents... The Karate Kid 2 Okinawa You can read along with me in your book You'll know it's time to turn the page when you hear this Let's begin now It was six months after Daniel LaRusso won the karate tournament that Mr. Miyagi received a letter telling him that his father was very sick. He would have to go to Okinawa. Daniel had his mother's permission to go with him, and wondered why Mr. Miyagi had left Okinawa in the first place. Mr. Miyagi smiled.
14: Fall in love with girl.
5: So why'd you leave?
14: Was arranged by her parents. She married someone else.
5: Did you ever meet the guy? Hi. Well, what was he like?
14: Was Miyagi's best friend. Named Sato. Girlfriend named Yukie. She sent me letter to say, father sick.
5: You think your friend Sado's still alive?
14: We were same age.
5: What did he do when he found out about you two?
14: Challenge Miyagi to fight.
5: Must have been some girl.
14: Ah. How I remember. I make big speech, in front of whole village. Miyagi break with tradition. Go against parents' arrangement. Won't marry Yukie anyway. Miyagi paused and slowly shook his head. Of course. Sato feel disgraced. So challenge Miyagi to fight to save his honor.
5: And you lost?
14: No. Never fight next day leave Okinawa forever.
5: Well, what about her? Didn't you love her? Very much. Did she love you? Hi. Well, so how could you leave?
14: Miyagi no believe in fighting.
5: I know that. But you guys are in love. Come on.
14: Daniel-san, never put passion before principle. Even if win, You lose.
5: Do You think they got married?
14: Sato. His family was richest in village. Yukie's was poorest. Was good arrangement.
5: Yeah, well, it was 45 years ago. He shouldn't be angry about his honor anymore.
14: Daniel-san. In Okinawa, honor have no time limit.
5: You serious?
14: In Okinawa, or no, very serious. On the plane to Okinawa, Daniel
13: wanted to know more about Sato.
5: Miss Miyagi, was Sato as good as you at karate?
14: Of same teacher.
5: Your father taught both of you. Hi. If you'd fought Sato. Do you think your father would have been referee?
14: No, there would have been no referee.
5: How would you know who wins?
14: The one who's dead doesn't. When they arrived in
13: Okinawa, they saw from a poster that Sato had kept up his karate and was now a famous teacher. To Miyagi's surprise, there was a car to meet them But instead of taking them to his father's village, it took them to Sato, who greeted them angrily.
7: So, coward, you return.
14: To settle affairs with father.
7: And with me? Sato, I no fight you. Then you die as you have lived, a coward. You see your father, then you see me.
13: Miyagi and Daniel were left to find their own way to the village. Eventually, they reached it and went to the house of Miyagi's father. He was being tended by Yukiya.
3: Your father sleeping, Miyagi.
14: Yukiya. How you know where to send letter?
3: Have now many years.
14: Why you never write sooner?
3: Out of respect.
14: For husband?
3: No, for your silence. I never married.
13: Miyagi's father woke and saw his son with great joy. He spoke weakly in his own language which Yukiya's niece translated for Daniel
3: Miyagi's father say if I am dreaming, let me never awake. If I'm awake let me never sleep.
13: The next day Miyagi showed Daniel his father's dojo and the secret of the Miyagi family karate. A toy drum on a stick with two small beaters attached by strings when the stick was twisted, the beaters struck the drum.
5: This is the secret of your family's karate? I don't get it.
14: Practice, Danielson. You will.
5: What do these posters on the wall say?
14: Ah, these rules to karate. Rule number one karate. For defense only. Rule number two. First learn rule number one. Miyagi took
13: Daniel on a conducted tour through the village.
5: Don't see many people fishing, Miss Miyagi.
14: You can't tell me that after war, Sato's father bought big modern boat and overfishing. Now, all the fish gone. My father helped village survive by organizing growing of vegetables. All land owned by Sato, who rents it to villagers.
13: At that moment, Sato drove up and confronted Miyagi.
7: You have seen fodder. Hi. Then we fight tonight. I bring a nephew for witness.
14: Then, you and nephew both lose sleep tonight. I not be there.
7: You leave me no choice. Sato drew back his
13: hand and prepared to attack. Miyagi looked at him calmly. As Sato was about to release a punch, Yukiya ran up and separated them.
3: Miyagi, your father, he wants you, and you too,
5: Sato.
13: At his father's house, Miyagi and Sato knelt on either side of the old man's bed. He opened his eyes for a moment, took their hands, and put them together, then smiled and quietly died Sato pulled his hand away and stood up
7: out of respect for my teacher I give you three days to mourn when finish I come back you prepare to join your father
13: Miyagi had no intention of fighting Sato and spent the next three days renewing his friendship with Yukiya Daniel, for his part, became very friendly with Yukiya's niece and she showed him the sights. One day they went into town and Daniel saw Sato at work with his students. He was very impressed. Then they looked in at a bar where bets were being wagered on who could break the most sheets of ice with a single blow Sato's nephew was there and forced Daniel into taking part
7: either you break ice or I break your neck all three sheets no not just three Fix!
13: Daniel was saved by the arrival of Miyagi don't worry I
14: fix
5: Thank you, Miss Miyagi.
14: I bet six hundred dollar Danielson break all six sheets of ice.
13: Daniel was horrified
14: and whispered
13: frantically to Miyagi.
5: What? I can't break six. I don't know if I can break one.
13: Sado's nephew was equally taken aback. He could not afford to bet $600. However, Sado himself arrived and guaranteed the money. Daniel had to go ahead. Mr. Miyagi made him do his breathing exercise, and then, to everyone's surprise, Daniel's included, he smashed all six sheets of ice with ease. That night, Daniel was alone at Miyagi's house, when he heard Sato calling.
7: Miyagi! Come out! We fight now!
13: Daniel went outside. He saw Sato and his nephew and two other boys who grabbed hold of him.
5: Uh, what are you guys doing here? Take your hands off me!
7: Where, Miyagi?
5: I, I don't know.
13: Sado turned to his nephew.
7: Leave message for me. With pleasure, uncle.
13: Sado left and the others proceeded to smash up the house and the garden. His nephew forced Daniel to fight with a spear, but Miyagi arrived back in time to save him.
7: Enough! Uncle have problem with Miyagi. Not with boy.
13: He took on all three at karate and soon had them running. You're
14: right, Don Harrison.
5: I thought he was gonna kill me.
14: Miyagi, make tea. Make you feel better. Tomorrow, we go.
13: The next day, Miyagi said goodbye
14: to Yukia. Yukia, I did not want for us to end this way again. I would stay if I could. I know. Yukia, what can I do to ease your pain?
3: Take me with you.
13: They were disturbed by the noise of a bulldozer tearing up the village vegetable plots. Sado was there, watching, and Miyagi faced him angrily.
7: What are you doing? I sell them. Why? Why you think you will destroy village? No. You will.
13: The two men stared at each other. Then Miyagi shook his head.
14: You win. I fight you. On one condition. No matter who win, title to land pass
7: to village forever. Ho oh, You ask for too much. Small price to pay for your honor. You are right. Small price. I see you here at midnight. Miyagi, I wait a long time for this. If you not fight me tonight, everything go. Whole village, the homes, the church, everything gone.
13: Later that evening, Miyagi handed Daniel a scroll of paper.
14: Here, take this.
5: What is it?
14: Last will and testament. You care get house here. You get house and pick up back home.
5: I don't want the house and pick up back home. I want you. Can we call this off? Why don't we just leave?
14: Impossible, Danielson.
5: Just forget about the honor garbage.
14: Have nothing to do with honor garbage. This have to do with village survival.
5: This isn't three points and you're out. If you lose, I know what happens. You're dead.
14: Miyagi already win. No matter what happen, village safe forever. As the time grew nearer for the
13: fight to the death between Sado and Miyagi, so the wind grew stronger and stronger until a fierce storm was raging. A girl, balanced on top of a tall bamboo tower, rang an alarm bell warning the villagers to take shelter from the terrible winds. Miyagi and Daniel were helping a mother and her baby to safety when a great gust of wind blew down the shrine in the center of the village. called out to Miyagi.
5: Hey! Sato's in there! I, I saw him praying! Here,
0: take me. I go find Sato.
13: Miyagi ran towards the heap of timber that had once been the shrine and met Sato's nephew running away from it.
7: Where's Uncle? He's dead!
13: The nephew ran to safety while Miyagi searched for Sato. He found him, still alive, but pinned down by a great beam far too heavy to lift. He raised his hand, ready for a karate blow. Sato saw him and taunted him.
7: Miyagi, oh, now you come to fight. Power. Now, when I am helpless, you are lower than a dog. Now whole will see this. Is the only way you can win.
13: With a great cry, Miyagi brought down his hand on the beam and broke it to release Sato. He helped him up.
14: Come, Sato-san. Easy. Uh, uh, I got you, old friend. Come. You'll be okay now.
13: Together they made for shelter. But Daniel saw that the girl on the bell tower was unable to get down, and that the whole tower was swaying dangerously. He started to climb up to rescue her. Sato told his nephew to help him.
6: I
12: cannot help him! I cannot!
7: You thought I was dead. Now, to you, I am dead!
13: His nephew looked at him with frightened eyes and ran away into the storm. <laughs> Daniel succeeded in rescuing the girl. And the next day, when everyone was clearing up the debris left by the storm, Sato appeared and handed some papers to Miyagi.
7: I come help rebuild. Yeah, deed to village. Belong to villagers now. Forgive me, I beg you Of course, Sato Nothing to forgive
13: At the big dance festival To celebrate the survival of the village Yukiye's niece Was performing a solo When she was grabbed by Sato's nephew He challenged Daniel to a fight To the death to satisfy his honor Daniel had to accept, for there was a knife at the girl's throat. The fight was hard and furious and seemed to be going against Daniel. He tried the crane technique. But this time it didn't succeed as it did at the tournament. Then Miyagi started to twist the toy drum. Tap, tap, tap. The whole audience joined in, and Daniel realized what the Miyagi drum technique was. Swing the body out of range. Then swing back and hit. Swing and hit. Swing and
7: hit. hit.
13: Sato's nephew could take no more. Daniel drew back his hand and aimed a blow at his opponent's face.
5: Live or die, man. Die. Wrong.
13: Daniel relaxed his arm and simply tweaked the boy's nose. Miyagi smiled and nodded approvingly as the crowd cheered, loud and long.
0: Yeah, that was the Karate Kid read-along. And I must admit, it is probably the worst of all of them. But that's just my opinion. You may actually enjoy them. I like the fact that they did make read-alongs based on these particular movies, but I think they could have done it way better than they did. But on that note, um, I'm going to upload a... uh, another episode that includes uh, some more of these 80s rainbow read-alongs and there's some of them you won't even believe that existed just like this this one you you this episode you would not think that these existed but i'm going to try to get my hands on some more of these i have some leads on some so hopefully i can put together another episode of these for everyone this concludes another episode of relics from the past and before i go i just want to send a shout out to talk junkie um you can check out talk junkie with justin perkins on uh itunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and my buddy mug's got a new one it's called randomness captured alive go check out randomness captured alive it's on itunes and wherever you listen to podcasts and Just want to say I hope that everybody's having a great day, considering what all is going on in the world right now. It is not really going to be a great day, but just be thankful that you're alive and thank the good Lord that you're still living. Until the next episode, take care and God bless. Oh, and make sure you wash your hands and stay at least six to eight feet or more from a person. Social distancing, people. Social distancing.